Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. My name is Andrew Brown. I'm the Director of Youth Ministry here at New Life. And I wanted to start this morning by drawing your attention to something that is so obvious you've probably never thought of it before. When you came into the sanctuary this morning, you came through a set of doors. See, pretty obvious, something you could clearly know about. You might not have noticed it. The doors might have been propped open this morning. But whether you came in through those doors, those doors, or those doors, you came in through a set of two doors. And what these doors do is they let you know that the sanctuary, it's different than the hallway. It's different than the narthex. It's been set apart for a special purpose. Throughout the week, these doors, I don't know if you've ever come in on uh, during the weekdays, but these doors are locked throughout the week. But they are opened on Sunday morning to allow the people of God to come together, to gather together, and to worship our King. Well, today, this morning, when we open up the Scriptures, we're going to learn about another set of doors that lead into a place of worship. The book of Psalms has been used for generations, both in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant, to lead God's people into His presence. And just like this sanctuary, the book of Psalms also has doors which set it apart, doors which must be opened and unlocked if we're going to enter the worship therein. A little over five years ago, I preached a sermon on the first door from Psalm 1. I'm sure you all remember this, so I mean, this is going to bring that memory back up. Five years ago, we preached on Psalm 1, and now today, we're finally going to cover the second door from Psalm 2. And while these two psalms, they are closely connected, they do focus on different requirements to enter the worship Of the Lord. Psalm 1, it really focuses on the contrast between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. But Psalm 2, it focuses not on a contrast, but on a conflict. A conflict between the rule of the Messiah and the rule of the world. But since these two cannot exist, in the end, there will be only one. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the one rule which we must joyfully embrace in order to enter the sanctuary of the Lord. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, can you turn it over to Psalm chapter 2? If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one in one of the seats in front of you. And Psalm 2 is on page 254. Now can you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 2, we're going to read all 12 verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. And cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. 
The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray right now that you would send your spirit to speak to us and to do things in our hearts that only you can do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I hope as you were reading that, you noticed that Psalm 2 is divided into four equal parts. And you could think of these four parts as four different scenes where there are four different speakers who are going to tell us each something about the rule of God. So the first one we're going to look at today is the rage of the nations, a contested rule. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 3. And I'm just going to read these again. We're going to go through each section, and I'm going to read them again. So here's 1 through 3 once again. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So here in the first scene, we kind of meet our main characters for this psalm. And first we meet the antagonists. And you might not have noticed this, but there's four of them. There's the nations, the peoples, the kings, and the rulers. And then after that, we meet our two protagonists the Lord and His anointed. But this is really not their scenes. We're not going to focus on them here. This is the bad guy's scene. And you can kind of almost picture this as if it were a movie, right? You have all the nations of the earth, all the important people, all the the rulers, the kings. In our day, you might think of the presidents. They're all coming together. They're putting their differences aside and they're uniting around a singular goal to overthrow the one rule of God. But notice something here about this gathering. It's not a happy gathering. The United Nations are raging. They're they're furious. They're they're going into the war room, so to speak, to to come up with strategies of how they're going to free themselves from the bondage that they are in to the Lord. And they're saying, in effect... We don't want God to rule over us. We want to make up our own rules. We want to decide what's best for us and what makes us happy. No one, not even God, should be able to tell me how to live. Does that sound familiar at all? It should, because while this was originally about the nations surrounding Israel during the time of David... This is a scene that repeats itself over and over again throughout history. Anytime 
a group of people, no matter how small, gathers together to rebel against the Lord, this scene is playing out. And what's so appalling about this scene and about rebellion in general is that it rarely acts alone. It's almost as if we can't get enjoyment from sin by ourselves. We have to get other people to join us as well. And so what we do then is we try and convince other people, other people around us, that our sin is not only okay, but good, and that you should join me in my sin. And that's really what we see at the start of Psalm 1. I told you again, these two are connected, and I am going to go back and forth between them. At the start of Psalm 1, there's the righteous and blessed man who rejects the counsel of the wicked, which is what we're seeing here. And in Psalm 1, instead, this man delights in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. And there's something really interesting here that you don't see with the English translation. The same word in Hebrew for meditate that's used in Psalm 1 is used here at the start of Psalm 2. The ESV translates this word as plot, the people's plot in vain. That word is meditate in Psalm 1. So think about that in the form of meditate. Think about what that means as meditate. The people here are meditating on their rebellion. And just like the righteous man in Psalm 1, he delights in his meditation, so here as well, the rebellious delight in their meditation as well. The world rejects God's rule because they delight in their sin. And they want you to join them as well. You can kind of hear the meditations of rebellion today. Every time you hear something say something like, you need to do what makes you happy. It's your body. Follow your own path. Be true to yourself. No one else can live your life. These and countless other examples are all attempts to get you to join in the rebellion of the nations against the rule of God. And so it's a responsibility of yours then to be able to recognize those things and reject them and resist them. Because every time you come into this sanctuary through those two doors to worship the Lord, you come in to worship a contested king. The world outside is doing everything in their power to tell you, hey, you don't have to obey God. You don't have to follow his rule. You can be free from that. You can do what you want. But we come in here because we know that that isn't reality. That's a fantasy world. I want you to notice one other thing at the end of verse 1 there. One other word. Vain. The plots, the strategies, the fury, the meditations, the desires of the nations to rid themselves of God's rule are vain. They won't succeed, and they will eventually be shown as the foolishness they are. One of my favorite TV shows growing up was a show called Batman the Animated Series, which is, by the way, peak TV. It doesn't ever get better than that, in my opinion. Uh, it's just great. But one episode of that show was entitled Almost Got Him. 
And in that episode, all of Batman's like most famous enemies, they're sitting around a table and they're just telling stories to each other. And they're all, they're all telling stories about how they almost got Batman. But then something happened and he escaped and he defeated them and locked them up, whatever it might be. I think that's kind of a good picture of what's happening here in Psalm 2. The nations are gathering around thinking about our strategies against the Lord, but it's never going to work out. All of their plots are in vain because the Lord rules whether they like it or not. And that brings us to the second point, the ridicule of the Lord, a confident rule. The ridicule of the Lord, a confident rule. We see this in verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So here, the scene kind of shifts, and it shifts from the war room of earth to the throne room of heaven. And now we get to meet one of our main protagonists, the Lord, who is God the Father. And the first thing to notice about this scene is the posture of the Lord. Think about what's happening on earth at this moment. The nations are raging. They're they're gathering together. They're plotting. They're, They're whipping themselves up into a fury. They're preparing their assaults. And yet what is God doing? He's sitting He's not concerned. It's almost as if God is saying, your rebellion is of so little concern to me that I don't have time to get up to deal with it right now. I remember when I was sitting outside in the grass at my old house, several ants, they they crawled up onto my leg and started biting me. And so I kind of, you know, flung them off right away. And I realized when I got up that I was sitting on on their colony. And so it kind of dawned on me what these ants were doing. They were attacking me as if they could somehow defeat me. And at that moment, I did what God does in this passage. I kind of laughed to myself. I mean, I could destroy these ants with just one kind of stomp of my foot. I could destroy them in an instant. Now, just to be clear, I did not do that. (laughs) I let them be. And yet, isn't this how God must see our rebellion as well. And yet, we are even less than ants. It is folly beyond imagination that any of us could in any way think that we could overthrow God's rule. And so God laughs when we try. But notice here, this is not a laughter of joy. This is a laughter of scoffing. The Lord is ridiculing those who raise their fists to him. In Psalm 1, to go back there, we we find the wicked, they they scoff at the righteous. They have that movement from sitting, I mean from walking to sitting to scoffing. That's what they're doing. They scoff at the righteous. Well, here now, God is returning the favor. God is scoffing at the foolish plans of man. And you know, history is full of examples of this. Think of Pharaoh or Haman the Agite or Herod the Great. They all planned to eliminate the people of God, the chosen of the Lord, but God scoffed at their plans and turned them upside down. Or think of the emperor Diocletian. He once wanted to purge Christianity from the Roman Empire. 
And so what did he do? He killed 3,000 people in his attempt to do that. Near the end of his life, he had a monument built for himself. And on that monument, he proclaimed that he had abolished everywhere the superstition of Christ. So that's his claim at the end of his life. I have abolished Christianity, the superstition of Christ. Do you know who the next Roman emperor was? Constantine. Constantine the Great, who converted to Christianity and helped it become the state religion of the entire Roman Empire. Or more recently, think of Mao Zedong, who in the 1970s tried to eliminate Christianity from China. And now, 50 years later, there's an estimated 40 to 60 million Christians in China. The Lord continually foils and brings to nothing the wicked plans of this rebellious world. God mocks them and he holds them in derision. And what that means for you and I today is that we don't have to live in fear of what will happen tomorrow. You too can laugh at the time to come. The rage of the nations is swirling all around us, but when you come through those two doors, you come to worship a God who controls all things. And that means you can have absolute confidence in his rule and his plan for your life no matter what happens, and you can join in the laughter of God. But I want you to notice one more thing before we move on here. In verse 5, one more thing. It, it tells us here that God's laugh doesn't last forever. There's going to become a time when God's laughter will turn to fury and wrath. And God's word will then bring terror upon the nations. But look there, because it's a surprising word. God says to them, I have set my king on Zion. That's the word he says to the nations. And that leads us to the third point. The reign of the sun, a conquering rule. The reign of the sun, a conquering rule. We're going to see this in verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So here now we see the, shift, the scene shift once again, and we kind of follow the words of the Father down to earth. And here we're going to meet our third speaker and the other main protagonist in this psalm, the Son of God. But the question is, who is this Son of God? You might have noticed, if you look at your Bible, there's no author named to this psalm. There's no, there's no, there's no you know, this is David sort of thing. That's not here. However, when we do come to the New Testament, Peter and John, they quote this psalm in Acts chapter 4, and they say that these words come through the mouth of our father, David. So it seems that this son was originally referring to King David. And that kind of makes sense when you remember the language of the covenant that God made with David. 2 Samuel, uh, 2, 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. David also fits well with the idea of the anointed one from verse 2. 
If you can kind of remember your Old Testament history pretty well, David's anointed three different times. And on one of those anointing, it's his coronation. It's now, it's, you're going to be the king of all of Israel, and everyone is accepting that. And so that's probably what's being referred to here in this psalm. On the day an Israelite king was crowned, he would be declared the son of God. That's what it means, today I have begotten you. Today I have become your father. So the Israelite king, from his coronation forward, would act as God's representative on earth. And according to verses 8 and 9 there, part of what that meant was to bring judgment down upon the rebellious. And that's why the nations here are so terrified at God's word. When God puts his king in place, it's kind of like him saying to the world, hey, the gig's up. You know, it's time to face reality. Your rebellion is coming to an end. So that's what God is saying to them through David. But here's the problem. David didn't bring the rebellious nations to an end. David didn't inherit a worldwide kingdom. And the ends of the earth were not David's possession. And the reason for that is because they were never meant to be his. You see, the Israelite kings of old, they're they're mere shadows of the one who is to come. I like to think of these kings almost like movie trailers. Um, When you watch a movie trailer, you get a glimpse of the film. You know, you get to see parts of it, but you have to wait until the movie comes out to get the whole picture. And so that's what David is kind of like. That's what the kings of Israel were kind of like. They're, They're previews to the whole picture. They're previewing and setting the stage for an infinitely greater king, an infinitely greater anointed one, an infinitely greater son of God, the one we know, because we've seen the whole movie, as Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that this psalm, and I would argue all psalms, are pointing to and about. And that means the speaker here is not ultimately David. This is ultimately Jesus Christ. But then that might bring up something in your mind. If this is Jesus, then then how can he say, today I have begotten you? Isn't Jesus the eternally begotten son, as we confess in the Nicene Creed? Well, yes, he is. But Jesus was not just the eternally begotten son. He was also the son of God who was declared to be the son of God on earth. And he's declared to be the Son of God by God himself. Just think, Jesus, when he's baptized, when he's transfigured, God speaks so that others can hear, this is my Son. God's declaring, this is my Son to all. And then also, when he was resurrected from the grave, it was declared that he was the Son of God. Listen to how the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 4. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So you can kind of think about this as the resurrection was Jesus' coronation day on earth. It's the first day of His reign and the day that He will begin taking possession of the nations. But it's also a day that we can look back on for assurance that Jesus will break into pieces the nations that refuse to submit to his rule. 
Look, another place in the New Testament, Acts 17 talks about this. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus is God's promise that Jesus will conquer the earth. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. We worship a God who is on mission. And that king calls us to join him on that mission. And so once again, that means when you come in here through one of these doors, you need to come in being prepared to be filled up and sent out into the mission field. You need to be prepared to conquer the nations alongside your king. The question is, well, what does that actually look like? And that's our fourth point today. The refuge of the people, a compassionate rule. See this in verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So here in this final scene, we go back to the very beginning. We go back to the raging of the nations. But now suddenly, suddenly someone else walks onto the battlefield. Someone kind of walks on and starts to address the people and calls to them to lay down their arms. But who is this speaker? You could kind of think of this initially as maybe just the narrator. Maybe it's just David. But there is a, a decent tradition in the history of interpretation of this passage, to think of this person as the Holy Spirit. And I think that makes pretty good sense from a theological perspective. The people of the earth rebel, and the Father, the Son, and the Spirit respond. But notice what the Spirit says here in response. First, he says, be warned and be wise. He's saying to those in rebellion, don't keep fighting in this battle. It's insanity to rebel against the Lord. The outcome is already determined, and if you don't lay down your weapons, you will be destroyed. So don't be a fool. That's what he says first. But then the Spirit goes on and he says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And that means if you, you must surrender to this king. You must surrender to the king of kings and lord of lords. Put out the white flag on your life. Give your life over to Christ. Come to him on your knees while you still have a chance. That's what this means, to kiss the son, to come to his feet and to beg for his mercy. I've heard it said the only alternative to rebellion is submission. It's the only alternative. To turn away from rebellion is to submit to the true king. But then in verse 12, something unexpected happens. The, the language suddenly shifts back to Psalm 1. It starts to use the language and the ideas of Psalm 1 again with two ways. 
There's the way of perishing and the way of blessedness. And this kind of reveals to us that there is still a path of blessedness. Even for those who have rebelled, who've spent their whole lives rebelling against God and His rule, there is still a path for us. A path not just of surrender and bitter defeat, but a path of life and joy and peace and blessedness. And that path has been opened to us through another scene that would take place a thousand years later. A scene to which this one is only a preview. Listen to how that scene is described in Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 28. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the nations raged against Jesus. They poured out their hatred for God and for his rule onto Christ by nailing him to the cross. But Jesus then did something that no one would have expected, especially if they had known this psalm. Jesus didn't rage back. He didn't dash them to pieces with a rod of iron. Instead, as he hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You see, the first way that Jesus will conquer the nations is through his mercy. He will rule over and take possession of the people by transforming his enemies into his friends. He will destroy the rebellion of the world by becoming their refuge. And that's the message that you and I get to proclaim in this age, that the conquering of the nations is happening now through Christ, through the gospel's proclamation going forward. And that's what we get to participate in right now. But there is another day. There is another day when Jesus will conquer the nations in a different way. When he returns to earth, he will not be coming in mercy, but he will be coming in wrath. And on that day, Everyone who continued in the rebellion against him will face his judgment. And this is a judgment we cannot escape. There is no refuge from him. There is only refuge in him. And so this morning, that brings us to a question. It's really the ultimate question. Where are you today? Are you in him? Are you seeking him as your refuge? Or are you still against him? That last day has not come yet. Jesus has not returned yet. And so that means there is still an offer of mercy for every one of you. There's still an offer of mercy from God. And so the question is, will you accept it? Will you embrace the one true king? It's the only way to be blessed, to be happy, to be 
joy-filled in this life and the next, to let Him rule every single part of your life. And so the call, my encouragement to you this morning, is to lay down your rage, lay down your rebellion. Don't persist in going against the God of heaven. Instead, come to Jesus. Come into the sanctuary of God through him. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you extend mercy to rebels like us and that you give us grace that we do not deserve. Lord, I pray that you would weaken our resistance to you, Lord. Help us to joyfully embrace your rule in our lives because that is reality and the path of joy. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.